with you this morning. It's even a greater joy as we gather together and we get to see a baptism, a testimony of a life that has been changed by the gospel. For those that don't know me, my name is Pastor Ryan, and I am this morning uh, preaching and closing out our study in the book of Numbers. Pastor Duane, who's normally up here, is overseas in Scotland and Ireland for our Pillar Network International Conference, and so you can continue to pray for him and Kay as they travel back this particular direction. I don't know if you've ever been to the airport at a time when there's a big group there to welcome somebody back, either that's been gone a long time or uh, they're maybe bringing back a child that they've adopted or some other kind of celebration that's going on. But when you look at that particular crowd, what you see is uh, generally, uh, you know, cameras up recording. You see sometimes matching shirts. You see uh, poster boards that have been decorated to welcome. you see them ready to welcome the people. And when they come down that corridor from the terminal, you see smiles start to come up. You see the, uh, the, the clapping, you see the hugs, you see all those kinds of things that are there, this preparation for one that's coming that they're wanting to celebrate. Matter of fact, I'll tell you, for me, when I come to the airport and I see one of those, I'm just hoping it's not the person behind me because I'm not wanting to be caught up in whatever's going on in that particular situation, but yet they're welcoming somebody. They're preparing the way for this person that's coming. What we're going to be looking at as we study Numbers chapter 22 through 36 this morning is how it is that God is preparing the way for the one that's coming. Now, you heard me right. Chapters 22 through 36, that's 14 chapters, so buckle up. We've got a lot to cover. Now, while these chapters don't represent the entirety of God's plan, they do give us an insight as to what it is that God is accomplishing in his plan leading up to Jesus, the one who is coming. They help us to understand what God is accomplishing as a part of this plan, because everything is leading to the arrival of Jesus and plays a role in accomplishing that plan. We're going to start off by looking at Numbers chapter 24 because this is going to be central to our message today as we look at chapters 22 through 36. And we look at verses 15 through 19 where Moses tells us about Balaam's fourth oracle. Numbers chapter 24 verses 15, it says, Then he proclaimed his poem, this is talking about Balaam, The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eyes are open, the oracle of the one who hears the sayings of God and has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision of the Almighty, who falls into a trance with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob. A scepter will arise from Israel. He will smash the forehead of Moab and strike down all the Sheathites. Edom will become a possession. Seir will become a possession of its enemy. But Israel will triumph. One who comes from Jacob will rule, and he will destroy the city's survivors. This is going to be a, there's going to be some audience participation this week, and so I want to prepare you for it. What I want you to do is be ready to say this. So say with me, what you're going to say is, because there is one who is coming. So say it with me. Because there is one who is coming. One more time. Because there is one who is coming. That's what it is that we're going to focus on as we look at these passages. So let's pray, if you would, as we launch into these 14 chapters. 
Dear Heavenly Father, guide us, lead us through your word, help us to see your plan, your faithfulness, the story of the one who is coming, the one who's coming for us, not only to redeem us, but to rule and to reign over us. And we pray these things in your mighty, wonderful, and gracious name. Amen. So let me ask you a question this morning. How does God's plan for the Israelites fit into his plan of redemption and to your life? You might read through something like the book of Numbers and you see a census and you go, okay, we've just counted some numbers. You see a story about how it is that the Israelites were unfaithful with the Midianites and the Moabites. You see a story about the land that they are going to possess and you go, okay, that's all interesting, but how does this apply to me? What I want us to see this morning is that God is at work today just as he was among the nation of Israel as his plan moves towards completion with the one who is coming, Jesus, the returning king. You see, we have a faithful God and we have a consistent God and we have a God that works the same today as he worked yesterday in accomplishing his particular plan. When we started this study of the book of Numbers, chapter 1 opens up with the men of Israel, 20 years old and older, being counted for those who were going to serve in the army to take over the promised land. This is why it is that God had brought them out of Egypt. 400 years earlier, a promise had been made to Abraham that one day his descendants would reside in that land where Abraham was standing when that promise was made to them. And here it is, you've got this count of this men, these men who are going to go and the spies are sent in, but yet what happens is they fail to have the faith that they need to trust God that he is going to deliver this land to them. Only two, Joshua and Caleb, had the faith that the Israelites should have had. And instead of, at that moment, the Israelites taking the promised land, Instead, they will wander in the wilderness for 40 years until this generation had passed away. Now they're gone. The Israelites are at the door of the promised land. They've seen success in battle. They're camping east of the Jordan River, waiting to enter the land that had been promised to their father Abraham. The first thing that I want us to see, we're going to look at chapters 22 through 24 and chapter 31 before coming back. I want us to see God's protection of his people because there is one who is coming. God's protection of his people because there is one who is coming. Chapter 22 opens up with the story of the king of the Moabites, a man named Balak. Balak, son of Zippor. And Balak has seen the Israelites go around the nation of Moab and defeat the nations north of him, and now he is concerned. But what he doesn't realize is that he actually shouldn't be concerned, because at the present moment, there's protection for the Moabites. You see, one of the things that we learn in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 9, this land that had been given to the ill-gotten children of Lot, is the Lord said... To Moses, show not hostility towards Moab, and do not provoke them to battle, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, since I have given it, given R as a possession to the descendants of Lot. So there's a protection actually for the nation of Moab, but Balak doesn't realize this. Matter of fact, redemptive history even shows us that there was a woman from Moab, Moab, Ruth, 
who ended up in the ancestral line of Christ because of the fact that she married her kinsman redeemer, Boaz, and eventually became the great-grandmother of King David. It's a beautiful picture of the redemption that includes the Gentiles as they're brought into this fold and the very line of the Messiah. But Balak didn't know this. He sees this nation coming out of nowhere. There's probably been rumors of this nation and the battles that they had been uh, winning, and he sees them win the battle with the nations that are north of them. And so what he does is he dials up a diviner. He, div he calls a man, calls for a na man named Balaam. And Balaam's an interesting character. Uh, we even have records outside the biblical text regarding his particular existence and his accomplishments. You see, recently I was with a man named Robert Smith. He's a preacher and a preaching professor at Beeson Divinity School, and I was talking to him about this passage and about Balaam. And he said, you see, Ryan, he says, Balaam was a prophet for profit. That's who Balaam was. Another way to think about it, he's a for-profit prophet. So what Balak did is he called 1-800-PROPHET, and he said, I need Balak to come, and I want him to pronounce curses on this particular nation that's here. It didn't matter what God it was. Balaam was there to serve whoever was going to pay him to do what it is that he needed to do. He was a prophet for any deity if you were offering the right price. And what Balak wanted Balaam to curse, to do is to curse the nation of Israel. And as he's heading to meet Balak, he's riding his donkey. Yes, I have another sermon that has a donkey in it. He's riding his, he's riding his donkey. And the donkey all of a sudden kind of becomes ornery and decides that it doesn't want to go any further. And Balaam keeps trying to get that donkey to go. And then finally, Balaam gets off and he beats the donkey. So Balaam didn't hear my sermon on Exodus as to what you do with your neighbor's donkey. He beats the donkey, and then something amazing happens. Kids, you ready for this? The, the donkey speaks. The donkey speaks to Balaam and says, why are you beating me? How faithful that I've been to you. Why is it that you're beating me? And then what happens is Balaam's eyes are opened, and he sees what the donkey saw. You see, what was there was this angel of the Lord standing in the path with his sword drawn. We're not talking about a precious, precious moments angel. We're talking about a warrior on behalf of God who is standing in the path with his sword drawn. And he tells Balaam, if you would have continued on, I would have killed you. And he says to Balaam, this is what you're going to do. You're going to meet with Balak, but you are only going to speak what God tells you to speak. And so Balaam continues on his travels to see Balak. And Balak says, I want you to curse this group of people. And four different times, Balaam ends up blessing them instead of cursing them. First time, Balak's not happy. He takes Balaam to another spot. He says, here, curse them. And once again, Balaam says, I can only speak what God tells me to speak. And he blesses them. We see this first in Numbers chapter 23, verse 8, where Balaam says, How can I curse someone God has not cursed? How can I denounce someone the Lord has not denounced? We see in the second oracle in Numbers chapter 23, verses 19 through 20, Balaam proclaims, God is not a man that he might lie, or a son of man that he might change his mind. 
Does he speak and not act, or promise and not fulfill? I have indeed received a command to bless, since he has blessed. I cannot change it. In the third oracle, in Numbers chapter 24, verses 8 through 9, God brought him out of Egypt. He is like the horn of a wild ox for them. He will feed on enemy nations and all their bones. He will strike them with his arrows. He crouches. He lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? Those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. And in the final oracle, Balaam proclaims in Numbers 24, 17, I see him now, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob, and a scepter will arise from Israel, and he will smash the forehead of Moab and strike down all the Shethites. Four times Balak wanted Balaam to curse Israel. Four times Balaam could only speak what God told him to speak, and that was to bless them and prophesy that there is one who is coming. But God not only protected his people by the fact that Balaam blessed them, but he also protected them in battle. We're going to skip forward to Numbers chapter 31 before we come back to chapter 25. And in Numbers chapter 31, we see them battling the Midianites. And the reason why they're battling the Midianites is because what we're going to go back and see in chapter 25, where they had fallen into sin, the Israelites had fallen into sin because they had been tempted by the Moabites and by the Midianites. And what happened during this particular time as they were doing these things is that God was continuing to protect his people. For one of the things that we see in Numbers chapter 31, verse 8, is that he protected them in battle. He says, they waged war against Midian as the Lord had commanded Moses and killed every male, along with the others slain by them. They killed the Midianite kings, Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, and Reba, and the five kings of Midian, and they also killed Balaam, son of Beor, with the sword. Did you catch that? Did you catch who they killed at the end? Balaam, son of Beor, with the sword. He was facing the sword of God if he was going to curse the nation of Israel. But what happened? We thought he blessed the nation of Israel. Well, if you remember back to our public reading of Scripture, we learn a little bit more about Balaam that we don't know in the passages here in Numbers. We see in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, that Balaam actually did end up helping Balak. As the Lord writes to, through John, to the church in Pergamum, he says in Revelation 2.14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. You see, Balaam received his reward, but it was not the reward that he was seeking. After those times where he blessed the nation of Israel, while Scripture doesn't record it, you can imagine the situation where Balaam calls Balak over and says, hey, let me tell you something. Let me give you some insight here as to what you need to do. There's a way that you can trip up the nation of Israel. You can tempt them with meat that's sacrificed to idols. You can tempt them with sexual immorality, and you'll trip them up. And they did. 
And so what happened is, is this battle then comes against the Midianites in response to what it is that they had done and tempted the Israelites after it was that God had protected them. And so in this situation, we see here that God is desiring to protect his people. He is desiring to protect his people because of the fact there is one that is coming and nothing is going to thwart his plan. Not a king of Moab who's trying to curse them. Not a prophet for gain. None of it is going to be able to thwart God's plan. You see, wrapped in that fourth prophecy that there is a star, a bright star that's coming from Jacob and a scepter from Israel, is not just the first coming of Christ, but it is also the second coming of Christ. They're all wrapped up into this particular prophecy that is here. And so where we are now is what is commonly referred to as living in the time between the times. We are the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Therefore, we have already experienced part of this prophecy, and it is often what's referred to as the already not yet aspects of prophecy, partially fulfilled, but not yet fully fulfilled. It's when Christ comes again to defeat Satan, to defeat the nations that rage against him, is when this prophecy will be made complete. You see, God was protecting the nation of Israel. Why? Because there was one who is coming. Did you know that right now that you're under God's protection? You're under God's protection in this period of time between the times if you are redeemed, if you are a child of God. We see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, Peter says that you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you see that? You are being protected by God's power. You are being protected by God's power for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And that is the second coming of Christ. Right now, you might be struggling with the security of your salvation, something that we all do from time to time. Whether that be sin in our life or looking at what's going on in other people's lives and wondering why am I not blessed in the same way that they are? Am I truly a child of God or not? And this is what it is that we rely on. We rely on that the security of our salvation has nothing to do with ourselves. It only is because of the power of God. And if God is the one who saved us, he is the one who will keep us and he will protect us into that last day of the second coming of King Jesus. So what we've seen here is that same protection for the nation of Israel exists for us. God is protecting his people because there is one who is coming. So we've seen his protection, but now what I want us to see in chapter 5 and chapter 25 is God's perseverance with his people because there is one that is coming. I mentioned when we looked at chapter 31 that we were going to come back and we were going to learn more about why it is that the Israelites went to battle against the Midianites for their parts and temp for their tempting of the Israelites. And this story is covered here in chapter 25. It's where we see God's perseverance with the, with the people besides or despite their sin. It displays the wickedness of man's heart, showing that despite that all God had done for his people, 
they would so easily abandon him. They didn't know that Balaam was up on those mountaintops with Balak, blessing the nation of Israel. But yet God had blessed them all throughout their journey, and yet they frequently wandered away. We read in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 5, that while Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, the people began to prostitute themselves with the women of Moab. The women invited them to sacrifices for their gods, and the people ate and bowed in the worship to their gods, so Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor. Do you hear that? It's in just a few of them. It says the nation of Israel decided to align itself with this foreign god, not the god who had brought them out of Egypt, not the god who had provided manna for them, not the god who had provided victories for them, but this foreign god as they are drawn away by the women of Moab and Midian goes on to say that the Lord says to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that his burning anger may turn away from Israel. So, Israel, so Moses told Israel's judges, kill each of the men who align themselves with Baal of Peor. This is the first time in Scripture where we see that Israel is guilty of worshiping Baal, but it's not going to be the last. Time and time again, the nation will be drawn away. They will struggle with this generation after generation because they will fail to drive out the inhabitants of Canaan and the nations that worship the foreign gods will continue to reside amongst them. Because of this unfaithfulness, God brought discipline down on the Israelites and he desires, as a reminder from what we learned in Leviticus, he desires for his people to be holy as he is holy and to have no other gods before him which is the first of the Ten Commandments. You see, God laid out the Ten Commandments, and the nation of Israel couldn't even get past number one. Couldn't even get past number one. And they found themselves guilty of where it is that they stayed. And during the discipline that the Lord was bringing upon the Israelites, there was a particular egregious act for which Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron, the son of the high priest Eleazar, took action to stop the killing, or by killing the offender Zimri, the son of Salu from the tribe of Simeon. And when Phinehas reacted in his righteous zeal for the Lord, the plague that the Lord had brought ended. But in all, 24,000 Israelites died as a reminder that the Lord has called his people to be set apart. Why didn't the Lord wipe out all of the nation of Israel? Why did he show perseverance. It was all because of his plan. He showed his perseverance because there is one who is coming. The King Je- this King Jesus is not coming just simply to reign, but also to rescue and to redeem his people from their sins. This is where the patience of God is put on full display. Despite Israel's repeated unfaithfulness, his perseverance also ensured that there was always a remnant from which the Messiah would come from. Now that we are between the times, are we still reliant with God's perseverance with us? Absolutely. His perseverance is displayed as his continued grace and mercy in all of our lives. We might look back at the Israelites and think of this almost like this film of a group of people that we don't understand. But it's really not a film of a group group of people that we don't understand. It's actually a mirror. 
it reveals our own hearts because our own hearts desire the same things that they did. Walk away from God in the same ways that they walked away from God. This is where our hearts are, if we're honest. But we have something in this time between the times where God perseveres with us because of the fact that we have an advocate with the Father. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, 2, 1 and 2 says, My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. You see, God continues to persevere with us because there is one who is coming, but also because of the fact that he has already come to rescue us from our sins. And God's perseverance just isn't for those who are believers. We even see God's perseverance for those who are unbelievers. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter tells us that the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. You see, you might be here today and you might not recognize or realize or understand what it is that we're talking about when we talk about a relationship with Jesus Christ. It might be something that seems a little bit foreign to you. You're not sure what to do with it. You're not sure exactly what that means. What I'm here to tell you is there's good news is that God is persevering with you, but he wants you to come unto faith, and he wants you to come unto salvation. It's simple. We recognize that we're a sinner, we confess it, we repent it, and we in faith trust what Jesus Christ did on the cross at his first coming to rescue us from our sin. Today can be the day of salvation for you. Today can be the day that you confess your sin, repent, and place your faith in Jesus Christ. I'd encourage you, if that's you today and you're not sure exactly what that means and what that, that takes, is at the close of the service, we'll have some response counselors down here. I encourage you to come up to them and say, tell me more. I encourage you to find one of us with these name badges on and say, please tell me more. Find anybody in this room and say, please tell me more. Because God is persevering with you and he wants you to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So we've seen God's protection and we've seen God's perseverance, but now let's look at chapters 26 through 30, and I want us to see God's prescriptions for his people. Why? Because there is one who is coming. So chapter 26 is a lot like chapter one. It opens up with another census. They're counting all of the men who are 20 years old and older who are going to serve in the army and are going to march into the promised land. There's a lot of similarities. The numbers aren't even that far off as to the count that we see in Numbers chapter 1, but the makeup of this group is completely different. If you remember, we have spent 40 years with Israel in the wilderness where this first census, everyone in it had died except for Joshua and Caleb. We see in Numbers chapter 26, verse 64 through 65, that Moses says, But among them was not one of those who had been registered by Moses. And the priest Aaron, when they registered the Israelites in the wilderness of the Sinai, for the Lord had said to them that they would all die in the wilderness. None of them was left except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. 
and Joshua, son of Nun. One of the things that the people of God were going to need is a new leader. Because not only did this generation pass away, but Moses was not going to be allowed to enter into the promised land. In Numbers chapter 20, we learn that because of the fact that he and Aaron disobeyed God's command to speak to the rock and instead struck the rock, that the closest that Moses would get would be able to stand on the mountaintop and to be able to see the promised land. In Numbers 27, verses 15 through 17, Moses appeals to the Lord. May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all, appoint a man over the community who will go out before them and come back in before them and who will bring them out and bring them in so that the Lord's community won't be like sheep without the shepherd. Moses knew they needed a leader. They needed a godly leader. And in response to this request, God tells Moses to appoint Joshua is the next leader. The same Joshua who was one of the faithful ones in the first group of spies to trust that God would be the one that would provide. And Joshua, like many Old Testament leaders, would end up serving as a type of Christ. He even had the same Hebrew name that Jesus has, Yeshua. And how appropriate it is for that to be the one, Yeshua be the one to lead the people into the promised land. And after the appointment of Joshua, the Lord had Moses remind the Israelites in the coming chapters the importance of times like the Passover day, like that of the inheritance, uh, uh, the inheritance of the land, the vows that they were to make, the day of atonement. All of these things are being brought up as a reminder. Because why? This is a new generation. This isn't the old generation that originally received these commands. This is a new generation that's being reminded of this. Plus, it's a, it's, it shows how quickly our mind and our heart forgets. Even Paul frequently writes to God's people saying that he brings things up by way of reminder because of the fact that we forget. Our hearts wander, our minds wander, and therefore we end up not walking according to God's word, which is the path of faithfulness. But it's important to remember none of these rituals, none of these special days were able to save these prescriptions that God had laid out were all types and shadows because there was one that's coming. You see, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, the writer of Hebrews says that since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices that they continually to offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once for all would no longer have any consciousness of sin, but in the sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, there is one who is coming, and there is one who has come. All these sacrifices, all of these festival days, these rituals will pass away, because there is one who is coming and has come to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. There is no need for a day of atonement because one has made atonement for our sin. There is no need to, to celebrate the Passover because the fact our sins have been passed over by the one who has come. We are no longer under the law. We know this from our studies in the book of uh, Exodus and the book of Leviticus and our book of Numbers, our study in the book of Galatians. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have things that he prescribes for us. 
as believers. Because while we don't earn righteousness by the things that God prescribes, it's because of the righteousness that we have been given in Christ that we carry out and have the ability to carry out these particular things. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 says, What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. God has prescribed for us to walk in the newness of life, to no longer walk in our sins. And in this time in between the times where we are waiting for the one to return, let us remember that God desires this is how we act until we come. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 6-8, Paul says, so, th so then, let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake to be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and the helmet of salvation. God has prescribed them some things for us. The righteousness that we are to walk in because of the fact that we have been made righteous by the one who comes. He has prescribed these things for us. Why? Because there's one who's coming. So we've seen God's protection. We've seen his perseverance with his people. We've seen his prescription for his people because of this one who's coming. But finally, in chapters 32 through 36, I want us to see God's promises for his people because there is one who is coming. God's promises for his people because there is one who is coming. Genesis chapter 15 verses 4 through 7 takes us back to when Abraham stood within the promised land and God had made him a promise. He said, when the Lord of the Lord, when the word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, look at the sky count the stars if you were able to count them. And then he said, your offspring will be that numerous. And Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to him his righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from the Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. You see, 400 years earlier, Abraham had received the promise that his descendants would possess the land that he was standing on. But this promised land wasn't just simply a land for his descendants to call home. It just wasn't a place for them to be able to set up shop. Instead, this land was going to be a place that from it would come one who would bless the nations. That was the promise that God gave. Yes, they would have a land. Yes, they would have a nation. Yes, they would have a possession. But ultimately, what's coming is a redeemer and king that will come from this promised land. The Israelites have had that land that was that have that land in their sights. They're on the east side of the Jordan. They can see it. It's in front of them. And at this particular moment, the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half and half of the tribe of Manasseh decide that they actually want to set up on the east side of the Jordan. Uh, they find that land more attractive as to where it is that they are. But one promise that they make is that we will go in and fight with our brothers until the land is taken. And we will not rest until that time has occurred. 
And then what happens in chapter 33 of Numbers is a story of all the places that the Israelites have been. This is to be able to remind the Israelites from where it is that God has brought them. Because as these cities are, are mentioned, it should bring back memories of what it is that God had done for them. How it is that he had been faithful to them. It's always a helpful exercise for us to look back, to be able to bolster our faith going forward. But it also helps them remind them of where it is that they had brought from and the task that is before them. The task that is before them was laid out in Numbers chapter 33, verses 50 through 56. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Tell the Israelites, when you cross the Jordan to the land of Canaan, you must drive out all of the inhabitants of the land before you, destroy all of their stone images and cast their images and demolish all of their high places. You are to take a possession of the land and settle in it because I have given you the land to possess. You are to receive the land as an inheritance by lot according to your clans. Increase the inheritance for a large clan. Decrease it for a small one. Whatever place the lot indicates for someone will be his. You will receive an inheritance according to your ancestral tribe. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, those you allow to remain will become barbs for your eyes and thorns for your sides. And they will harass you in the land where you will live. And what I had planned to do to them, I will do to you. The Israelites ultimately failed to accomplish what the Lord had put before them as a nation. Chapter 434 goes on to set out the boundaries of the promised land. And the truth of the matter is, is that the Israelites never did fully possess the boundaries that God had set out. They were much, much more expansive than what they ever resided in. This was because of due to their own failures, their failure to drive the people out, the comfort that they had received in the places where they had been, and they failed to carry out God's command. In chapter 35, we're reminded that the Levites don't have an inheritance among the nation of Israel. They are not to have plots of land. Instead, what they have is they have 48 cities. This is so it is that the people of God would be spread out among the Israelites, that the leaders of, of, of them, the priest, would be spread out among the Israelites so they write, might remind them of the commands of God. And in addition of those 48 cities, there's six cities that are there that are called the cities of refuge. And the cities of refuge are those that are set aside for anyone who unintentionally kills somebody. And this is a city that they can run to for protection. Even this picture here with the priest of God, how it is that there is this protection that he provides for his people and this forgiveness that he provides for his people. As we get to chapter 36, as we close out this look at the book of Numbers, it establishes a standard by which property is not just to transfer among tribes. Numbers chapter 36, verse 7, in answering a question about inheritance and what's supposed to happen, it says that no inheritance belonging to the Israelites is to transfer from tribe to tribe, because each of the Israelites is to retain the inheritance of his ancestral tribe. You see, each, each of these tribes one day is going to be represented before the throne of God. 
we see the picture of the ceiling of the 144,000 in the book of Revelation, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel that are there. However, the retention of these identities tribes is important. Why? Because there is one who's coming. You see, the prophecy is not simply that there's a bright star coming from Jacob or a scepter coming from Israel, but there's one that's coming from the tribe of Judah, and there's one that is coming from Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One who will come from you will be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity and from ancient times. See, God promises, God's promises for his people are there because there is one who is coming. In Revelation chapter 22, we learn that Christ is described as the bright morning star. There will be a bright star that comes from Jacob. We also see in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8, But to the Son your throne God is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. We realize there is a scepter that is coming from Israel. The promised land was part of God's plan through his promises to bless the nations. It was a temporal place. However, for those of us who are living between the times, we have hope because there is one who is coming. There is a promised land for us where we reside with him. And that happens because Christ is coming back again. There is one who is coming. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16 says, Then I saw heaven opened up, and there was a white horse, and its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war, and his eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head, and he had a name written that no one knows except himself, and he wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linens. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. And he will rule them with an iron rod. And he will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has names written on his robe, on his thighs, King of kings and Lord of lords. Prophecy that Balaam said that he will smash the forehead of Moab. You see this fulfilled in his second coming where he tramples over Satan and he tramples over the nations because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You see, our blessed hope is that we're going to be with our King in this new creation after his coming. Just a little bit later in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, John records that he showed me the river, the water of life. This is our promised land, brothers and sisters clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb of God down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit in every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will be no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need light, the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever.
You see, God has a plan, and it's centered on the one who is coming. He protected Israel. He protects us because of one who is coming. He perseveres with us. He persevered with Israel because there is one who is coming. He gave prescriptions to Israel and prescriptions to us because there is one who is coming. And he gives promises to the nation of Israel and he gives promises to us. Why? Because there is one who is coming. This is the hope that we have. Jesus Christ, our King, the Messiah, is coming again. He has come once. He will fulfill this prophecy. He will set up his kingdom, and we will be in this new promised land with him. What a hope that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. The fact that we can look at the nation of Israel we can see that you are a consistent God. You haven't changed the way you worked. You haven't changed your plan. It's still the same. Because there is one who's coming. There is one who has come, and he is coming again. And Lord, we find hope in that fact, that we would trust in your protection because of it. That we would delight in your perseverance because of the one who's coming. That we would follow your prescriptions because of the one who is coming. And that we would trust in your promises and delight in your promises because of the one who is coming. We pray these things in your mighty, wonderful, and gracious name. Amen. Amen.